Today, we're going to be looking at individuals who not only had success on the field, but also who became excellent leaders of baseball clubs. That's right. We're going to be looking at the best player managers in MLB history. We'll be ranking our top five choices based on a number of metrics, including their success as a player, their success as a manager, and their overall impact on the game. So who were the best to have one foot on the diamond and one foot in the dugout? Stay tuned to find out today on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode. I am, as always, your host, Jeff Lambert. Thanks again for tuning in. It's always nice to have you. Before we get into our episode for today, which is about the best player managers in baseball history, I am excited to announce that I'm making a reinvestment in this show. You know, for those of you who have been following Rounders since 2018 when we launched, one thing has been kind of just not able to work out as well as I've wanted to. And that's been a consistency of publishing episodes. So I'll have a great stretch where I'll put out an episode per week for a couple months and then nothing will happen for two or three months. And then you'll get another batch or there will be kind of incremental pauses in putting out the show. And you know, that really just comes down to the fact that this show is a labor of love for me. But in the reality of the situation, I'm working two jobs. I have a family, I have a son, you know, and and personal things come up and then work things come up. And unfortunately, there's only 24 hours in a day. But I know that I have so many people that follow this show that really enjoy the topics. They love the sport. I've made some great relationships along the way. And I want to do better for you. So what I've decided to do is I'm reinvesting in the show personally. I'm going to be hiring two assistants to help me with the research and production of the show to make sure that we can put out a quality episode every week for you to enjoy. So I'd like to mention who those two individuals are because I'd like you to support them. They're joining the Rounders family. Our first individual's name is Cass Silver. Cass is going to be joining as a research assistant. And Cass actually plays baseball professionally. He is a pitcher who has pitched both in the American Association and the Pioneer League. And if you'd like to follow him and say hello and get to uh, follow his career as it develops, he's on Instagram at cccchristopher. And I'll make sure to include a link for that in the show notes so you can easily click to follow. The second individual's name is Roger Cumberbatch. Roger is based out of Toronto, actually. He's a sports journalist, and he has worked in sports radio. And he's going to be helping us develop a bonus show, which I will explain in due time, to be able to give you access to even more content related to baseball history if you would decide to support the show financially as I'm making this investment. But I'm really excited to just let you know that you can expect Rounders to become a regular weekly part of your schedule, even more so than it is now. And that really comes from me deciding, you know, I love this show. I am excited to see it continue. I'm excited to keep the relationships that I've built through this show. And most importantly for you, I want to give you something of quality to be able to enjoy that's related to a sport we all love. And of course, looking into its rich, rich historic tradition every week. So please make sure if you haven't already, 
Tell a friend, get them excited about the show. If they love baseball, if they love history, this is the place to be. If you are looking to listen, maybe this is your first time, we're available everywhere. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Stitcher. There's a web player that you can go to, and all these links are in the show notes. And keep in mind, we have a YouTube companion where you can watch a video version of this by going to YouTube. And overall, folks, I just want to thank you for sticking with me as we finish out 2021, and I'm looking forward to what is coming in 2022. So with that said, let's go ahead and jump into today's episode, The Greatest Player Managers in Baseball History. You know, when we think of the player-manager phenomena and we look across today's landscape, in Major League Baseball, it's not something that if you're a younger fan, you would necessarily be familiar with. We haven't had a player manager in a very long time, and there is a reason for that. But let's start our journey by talking about the player manager concept, by kind of looking back at the history of how this started, having one guy who not only plays the field, but also manages the team. Now, it's important to understand that the use of the player manager was way more prevalent back in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s. And then, of course, it started to peter out as the decades went on and ended in the 1980s in terms of the last time we saw an active player manager. So the first player manager we saw actually goes back to 1872. A gentleman named John Clapp was a player manager for the Middletown Mansfields. He was the first one on record that we have. So, you know, in that era, player managers, they were full-time players. They were out there for nine innings. They took on the role of manager, usually to maximize their own personal salary. And it was a way for them to be able to make a little bit more, make a little bit more of a career out of it instead of it just being a side job. And that's really how it was. And as time went on and the decades went on, the most recent player managers in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, they were utilized more as part-time players. They weren't doing it full-time like their predecessors, but they also took on the full-time managerial responsibility. So an example of that would be Don Kessinger or Pete Rose. These were both guys who they still played part-time, but they were also full-time in the dugout. Now, the usage, like I said, has died out completely. We haven't seen one since the 1980s. And really, it just comes down to the fact that the the role of manager and the role of front office investment by teams is incredibly complex compared to what it was 100 years ago. We have people that are hired specifically just to do analytics, to deal with front office politics, to handle media appearances, public perception of the team, uh, role specialization down to you know pitching coach, third base coach, you name it, all of these specialists to help with players. And really, it, it really has come down to the fact that there's not a really a need for player managers anymore because teams have the money to be able to spend to have someone fill that role full time. And there's a belief that having a strong front office is vital to the success of a team. So unlike when this first started in the late 1800s, teams were just trying to make ends meet, trying to be able to find a way to stretch their budget and taking usually the best guy on the team who had the ability to manage other people and have him take that role. But it's different now. So will we ever see player managers again? I do have some thoughts on that. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, I will share my, my perspective on that specific question. But that is the history of player managers. It's something that's been around since the birth of the sport. And even though it's not around now, there are some great stories to tell related to individuals that filled that role of player manager. So we're going to give you our top 
five choices for the best player managers in MLB history. Now, what's the criteria that we use to decide these top five individuals? Because we do have a lot to choose from. Well, we decided to look at their on-field performance as a player because certainly what they did on the field impacted their impact on the sport overall. It, it made them the name that we know in throughout history. We also want to look at what was their off-field success like as a manager. Were they able to handle both sides of the job, not only sufficiently, but in a superior way. And then we also want to look at what was their impact on the sport and the franchise they played for as a whole. How are they remembered? So those are the three pieces of criteria that we use to come up with these top five choices for who we think were the best player managers in MLB history. So let's go ahead and start off with number five. That is a gentleman named Fred Clark. Now, Fred Clark played for 21 years from 1894 to 1915. His career spanned across two specific baseball clubs, the Louisville Colonels and the Pittsburgh Pirates. This gentleman absolutely had a top shelf impact on the game in its earlier years. He had a career WAR of 67.9, and that is good enough for the 124th slot all time amongst players. Remember, this is a guy, turn of the century, who was able to accomplish this. He had a career batting average of 312. He racked up 2,678 career hits. And he also averaged around 37 steals per season. Not bad, huh? 509 career stolen bases overall was what he was able to rack up. And that's good enough for 35th all time. So this gentleman was certainly a well-known weapon for his team as he played the game. Now, towards the beginning of his career, he obviously, right out the bat, became a fan favorite. And just to give you an example of that, in 1895, his second year in uh, playing for his club, he hit 347. In 1896, he hit 325. And automatically, the players and fans really enjoyed having him around. So at the age of 24, the Louisville Colonels asked him to take the role of manager for the baseball club. So he was uh, lumped in with uh, the phenomena of having younger players take on this role in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Uh, he was one of the first boy managers as the term that was assigned to these individuals. And there were others that were assigned to the managerial position at very young ages too. Some examples, Bucky Harris, Lou Boudreau, both of those individuals were also at a very young age named managers to their clubs at a very at a very young young age. So right from the start we see that Fred Clark saw success on the field. How did he do off the field in the dugout? How did he manage his club? Pretty well. <laughs> he was able to take the Pirates in 1899 who finished in 7th place and the following season under his under his watchful eye, the Pirates placed second in just one year as player manager. The team went on to win four National League pennants in 1901, 1902, 1903, and again in 1909. He was a World Series champion with the Pittsburgh Pirates that final year. So overall, in his time in the manager position, he had a 562 career winning percentage and an overall 
a total of 1,602 wins under his belt. Now, why didn't he keep going? Why did things end in 1909? Well, he actually kept managing after this. He finished his playing and managerial career in the same year, in 1915, and he finished it with the Pirates, where he saw the majority of his success. Things started to go downhill for him from 1912 to 1915. He only played in 17, well, he had 17 at-bats, excuse me, in his final three seasons. So we saw the playing side of his responsibilities really did just drop towards the end of his career. But his managerial skills certainly were never called into question. When we look at his overall impact on the game, he was elected to the Hall of Fame as a player in 1945, and Fred Clark stayed within the MLB, continued to find ways to help baseball clubs win. He stayed with the Pirates and remained in an advisory role all the way until 1926 after his retirement. So an additional nine years that he brought his expertise to the club. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, our pick for fifth on our list, Fred Clark. Let's go to our fourth pick for the best player manager in MLB history, and that goes to none other than Pete Rose. Oh, yes, Pete obviously is known for his accomplishments on the field. And for those of you who may not be intimately familiar with Pete Rose and his exploits, this guy was amazing. He is the all-time hits in games played leader. He has 4,256 hits to his name. He has a career 303 batting average to match it. He went to the All-Star game 17 times. He had two gold gloves. He was the 1963 National League Rookie of the Year. He was the 1973 National League MVP. And in 1981, he won the Silver Slugger Award. This guy was a three-time batting champ. He was a three-time World Series champion, and he was the 1975 World Series MVP. So that, in a nutshell, is Pete Rose. The man was dominant during his playing career. Now, how did he transition to the dugout? What happened there? Well, look, Pete Rose was trying to prolong his career towards the tail end. He had this goal of being able to beat Ty Cobb's all-time hit record, and Having to uh, split duties to be able to play part-time but also be able to serve as manager was able to keep his, his usefulness to the club higher. And so they brought him on as a part-time manager and a part-time player, and that allowed him to keep being able to rack up the games and the at-bats. And he actually broke Ty Cobb's record in 1985. So he accomplished his goal by taking on these duties. But in 1986, just a year after, he ended up not playing another game, but he didn't officially retire as a player, even though he stopped playing in 1986. He kept managing through 1989, and I guess his availability would have been a possibility if the uh, situation called for it, but he never stepped on the field after 1986 again. But he did accomplish his goal, and that the reason for taking the managerial job was to beat that all-time record by Ty Cobb, which he did. Now, how did he do in the player-manager role? He had more success when he was splitting time between playing and being a manager. When he was just a manager, not playing any games for those final three seasons, he didn't have the same success rate. But overall, while he was wearing the managerial cap, he led the Reds to two second-place finishes in his years in 1985 and 1986. 
So, uh, certainly something to keep in mind. His playing career certainly outshines his managerial success, but certainly not in a way that shows that he wasn't successful from the dugout. Now, what happened to Pete Rose? This deserves an episode all to itself, which we have put in the pipeline. Uh, For those of you that lived through it or who are familiar with the tale of Pete Rose, the infamous Dowd report came out. John Dowd submitted a report to Commissioner Bart Giamatti, and it highlighted Pete Rose's betting while manager for the Cincinnati Reds. He was betting on baseball while sitting in that dugout position. And there was a huge fallout from this. Like I said, I don't want to get too much into it because like I said, we could, we could dedicate an episode just to talking about this. But Pete Rose was automatically, after a decision made by the commissioner and the board, he was placed on baseball's ineligible list and he received a lifetime ban from the game of baseball. So why would we include a guy like this on our top five list for player managers of all time? Well, look, Pete Rose has the designation of being the last player manager in MLB history, at least through today when this episode was published. And Pete Rose is, you know, unfortunately overshadowed by what happened at the end of his career. Rose is a well-known and documented figure, though. And unfortunately, his gambling and his lifetime ban, it, it, like I said, it overshadows what he did on the field, which was absolutely amazing. But there's no doubt of the impact that he left as a player. His impact for the Reds franchise overall, he was the all-time hits leader. He was the face of the big red machine in the grade eight teams. And because of that, that accomplishment that he brought to Cincinnati, his legacy in Reds folklore still makes him uh, a favorite, a treasured icon for Cincinnati Reds fans and for baseball fans overall, depending on who you talk to. But it obviously slants towards... This guy was an amazing player. That's why we put him on this list, 100%. His overall impact on the game, his marginal success, but noticeable success as a manager, and certainly his on-field exploits. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to go to our third pick, number three for top player manager of all time, and that goes to none other than Tris Speaker. Tris played from 1907 to 1928. He played most of his career with the Boston Red Sox and the Cleveland Indians. He is the all-time doubles leader in baseball, 792 over the course of his career. That's an average of 46 per 162 games. Pretty impressive. He hit 3,514 hits over the course of his career, and he had a 345 career batting average. He absolutely was one of the best hitters of his generation, but he also was incredibly good in the outfield, and he should absolutely be in the conversation for one of the best all-time fielding outfielders. Let me explain to you why. He is first all-time in outfield assists with 449. He's second all-time in outfield putouts, and the only person that's in front of him is Willie Mays. He won three World Series championships. He was the American League MVP in 1912. He won the batting title in 1916. He hit 386 that season, by the way. And he has a career WAR of 134.7. That is good enough for ninth on the all-time list. No doubt that this guy was one of the best to step on a diamond, both in at the plate and both in the field. Tris Speaker was dominant. Now, how did he do as a manager? 
Well, remember, his career started in the early 1900s, and it was not uncommon for players to also serve as managers. Now, he received this opportunity to start being a player manager very early on in his career. He actually started with the Boston Red Sox as a player manager, and he continued in that role when he transitioned over to Cleveland. And the most of what he is known for, at least from the managerial side, happened while he was with Cleveland. He was actually a player manager every year that he was a player. So just to clarify that, he was never just a manager. He always played while he managed. So from 1919 to 1926, that's when he spent his time with the Cleveland Indians, and that's when he had the greatest impact in that position. In 1920, just his second year in as the player manager, he led the Indians to a World Series championship. Wow. And in the final eight seasons, well, overall, that he was with the Indians, he racked up 617 wins and 520 losses. Incredibly impressive, especially during the time period. So what happened to Tris Speaker? Why did he end his career, at least as a manager, a little bit early? The Indians ended up playing the Yankees in the championship series in 1926. It was a devastating loss for them. The Indians ended up losing. Tris Speaker was 38 at the time. He decided that he didn't want to manage anymore, and he ended up resigning. So he stepped away from his role with the Cleveland Indians, but he decided to keep playing. He wanted to try baseball without the managerial responsibilities. So in 1927, Tris actually signed on with the Washington Senators, not as a player manager, just as a player. He had an average season with them. And then in 1928, which was his final season at the age of 40, he ended up playing with the Philadelphia Athletics, and then he retired. So overall, we look at Triss's accomplishments on the field, his accomplishments as manager, certainly nothing to uh, look down on there. And we look about his his overall impact on the game of baseball. He was very quickly after his career ended, inducted into the Hall of Fame. In 1937, he was inducted. So we're talking about six or seven years after he was, after he was uh, inducted forgive my math. I wasn't sure <laughs> which one it was, but six or seven years after retirement, the guy's already in the hall. He won. He was the first player manager to be able to take the Indians to a championship in 1920. He broke Ty Cobb's consecutive batting title streak at nine seasons when he won the batting title in 1916. Certainly a momentous moment in MLB history. And he's often compared right there with Ty Cobb as the best player of his era. And it had a lot to do with the fact that he was also an excellent fielder. Ty Cobb was certainly a superior hitter, but what Tris Speaker could do in the field absolutely made up for that gap between them. Speaker was known for being uh, someone who played more shallow in the outfield when he was out there. And this allowed him to get a lot of force outs at second. He's actually the all-time leader in that. He has 146 outfield double plays, just to give you another example of his fielding prowess. So Tris Speaker comes in at number three for us for top player managers. We have two more to be able to present to you, but we're going to take a quick break for the seventh inning stretch. Stay right with us. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's Jeff, the founder and host of the show, and I have some exciting news for you. In addition to the Baseball History Podcast you know and love, I'm launching a weekly email newsletter. In it, you'll find a link to each new episode, 
along with curated baseball history news, stories, polls, and more. It's completely free, and it's a simple way to enjoy the Rounders show that you love even more. And for those of you who would like to support the show as a subscriber, you can easily become a member by signing up using the link in each newsletter. For just $5 a month, I'll send you a weekly email with bonus episode content, including our newest show, This Week in Baseball History, where we take a look at the major stories that happened throughout baseball's past and how they relate to America's pastime today. As members, you'll also have opportunities to vote on future episode topics and participate in exclusive events, such as the Rounders Fantasy Baseball League. If you'd like to send me a small token of your appreciation just once a year, we have an annual plan that will save you money over the monthly fee. And if you really enjoy the show and you want to send me a more significant contribution, I've created a Rounders Starting Nine tier for an annual payment of $100. You'll have my eternal gratitude and have your name included in the episode credits as a show producer. In addition, you'll get to choose the topic for one episode each year, and you'll get a free Rounders Starting Nine member t-shirt. Most importantly, you'll continue helping me grow this show. I'm grateful for your support, and I look forward to sharing more of the best stories from baseball history with you in the future. Click the link in the show notes to sign up for the email newsletter today, or go to rounders.substack.com. That's rounders.substack.com. Now, let's get back to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Today, we are discussing the best player managers in MLB history. We started off at the top. We're bringing you our top five. We started off at number five with Fred Clark, and then we transitioned to number four, Pete Rose, our third. Pick for number three overall is Tris Speaker. And now we move to our second, number two on the list of top player managers. And that goes to none other than Joe Torrey. Now, some of you, especially those who are a bit younger, might think of Joe Torrey only in the capacity as being a manager with the Yankees. That was certainly a time when he achieved a lot of success. But no, this gentleman certainly saw a lot of his success on the field, too. And we're going to talk about his career as a whole. So Joe Torre actually spent 18 years playing in the MLB. He split his time between the Milwaukee Braves, the Atlanta Braves, the St. Louis Cardinals, and the New York Mets. And in 1971, he ended up winning the National League MVP playing for the Cardinals. And he also won that year's batting title and he hit 363 that season. He had nine all-star appearances. He was the gold glove winner in 1965 he had a career batting average of 297 and a 57.5 career war. He's actually tied with Willie Stargell for 135th all-time among position players for that statistic. So certainly no question about his impact on the field. Why did he transition to the position of player manager? Well, in 1977, he was hired by the New York Mets to fill both the role of playing and managing the club. He replaced Joe Frazier 
after the Mets had a really bad year in 1976, and they started off the 77 season uh, in through 23 games, just in a horrible state. They decided, you know what, we're going to fire you. And they went with a guy on their roster who they thought could handle the position of manager. And he took over mid season in this role, continued playing in the field and managed the club. So he did this all the way until he was 37 years old. He had decided at that time that his playing ability did not uh, add up to where he wanted to put the focus. He felt he was of more use in the dugout. So he ended up retiring from playing, but continued managing the team at the age of 37, right after that 1937 season. How did he do in the dugout? Well. He spent 29 years managing. He managed the Mets. He managed the Braves. He managed the Cardinals. He managed the Yankees. He managed the Dodgers. He won four World Series championships. He won six American League pennants. And he did it all with the New York Yankees. That was that stretch as I was talking about. But he was also manager of the year, elected twice. He has the most managerial wins in the postseason of any other manager. He has 84 wins in the postseason as a manager. So he made that transition, uh, that transition, excuse me, into the dugout, certainly to be able to fill the role that was left for his team. He found more success as a manager, but certainly, certainly was a huge asset on the field as well. He is not currently active as a manager in the MLB. His final year was in 2010 with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And in 2011, because the guy had been involved in the sport for so long, certainly a well-known figure, someone who was known as uh, someone who really understood the game, uh, the MLB actually offered him a position within the organization as the head of baseball operations. And he still works for the MLB to this day. He's actually a special advisor to the commissioner. So when we look at Joe Torre's career, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame as a manager in 2014. He's also the only major leaguer to achieve 2,000 hits as a player and 2,000 wins as a manager. So we see that success on both sides. He is fifth all-time in managerial wins despite not managing for a good chunk of his career. He is a legend with New York Yankees fans. Absolutely. He's associated with that core four in their dynasty. He's a household name and his legacy goes way beyond just one franchise, but certainly he is treasured by New York Yankees fans. He is the very definition of a baseball lifer and you see his success on field, off field. And in that combination, no doubt Joe Torre deserves the accolade of being number two on our list as the top player managers. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have made it to the top of our list. Who is number one? Who should be considered the top player manager in MLB history? That accolade goes to Frank Robinson. Frank played 21 years in the MLB as a player. He played for Cincinnati. He played for Baltimore. He played for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He played for the California Angels, which they were called when he played for them. He also was able to play his career and finish in Cleveland. He is also another Cleveland Indians gentleman on our list. Uh, He was only a player manager for the final two seasons of his career from 1975 to 1976. And we'll explain why in a second and why we would still include him as number one. Well, 
just to round out his playing career so you understand how dominant this gentleman was on the field, he was a two-time MVP selection. He's actually the only major leaguer to win an MVP in both the American League and the National League. He was named the American League MVP in 1966, and that same season he won the Triple Crown and was named World Series MVP. Overall, he went to the All-Star Game 14 times. He started off his career strong, too. In 1956, he won the National League Rookie of the Year. He was named a Gold Glove recipient in 1958. He won two World Series championships as a player. He had 586 career home runs. That's good enough for 10th on the all-time list. He also had a 107.2 career war. That's 23rd all-time. And he's just shy of being a member of the 3,000 hit club. He finished with 2,943, and that's still good enough for sixth on the all-time list. No question Frank Robinson was absolutely dominant during his playing career. So when did he make the transition to having one foot in the dugout? Well, he was actually traded to Cleveland. The California Angels traded him in 1974 because he had expressed some interest in being a manager for a club. Now, that was the the reason that Cleveland gave why they traded him in 1974, excuse me, why California traded him to Cleveland in 1974. But there are also rumors that he did not get along with his current manager there, Bobby Winkles. And Nolan Ryan, who was his teammate at the time, actually agreed with this. And he had said, quote, they were not a good match. We were in rebuilding mode. And at that point in Frank's career, he would have been better someplace else competing for a pennant, end quote. So, We see Frank Robinson make the switch over to Cleveland. He's later in his career, but he receives the offer to become the manager while he's still taking on active player duties in Cleveland. So at the end of his career, why? Why would you give him the first slot? Why would we do that? Well, Frank Robinson holds the the accolade of being the first African-American manager in MLB history. And that's the reason why we place him so high. His dominance as a player and his dominance as a manager, which we're going to talk about in a second, came together to be able to break a barrier that had existed in Major League Baseball for a very long time. And he was able to do that by taking on the reins of becoming that first African-American manager in baseball history, in MLB history, I should say. Now, what did he do as a manager once he took those reins? Well, he ended up managing for an additional 16 years after he was uh, put to this position. He, he was a manager for the Cleveland Indians, for the Giants, for the Orioles, for the Expos, for the Nationals. And he has a career 475 winning percentage. He was named the American League Manager of the Year in 1989 for the Orioles. And he played all the way, excuse me, he managed all the way until 2006 where he retired with Washington. And he still works in the league. He is an MLB executive. And really, Frank Robinson, again, is larger than life in terms of his value to the sport. He was named to the Hall of Fame in 1982, even before he finished his career as a manager. He's one of the most accomplished major leaguers ever. If you look at the fact that he was Rookie of the Year, he was an MVP in both leagues, he was the World Series MVP, he was the All-Star Game MVP, he won a Triple Crown, and he won Manager of the Year. And on top of that, because of his exploits, not only on the field and as a manager, but also for uh, breaking down barriers for African Americans in baseball, he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2005 from President George W. Bush. 
Now, Frank himself says that he he feels a little bit uncomfortable being known as a civil rights leader, but he does have that status. He broke down the managerial color barrier. And on top of that, remember, it wasn't just that. He was a prolific MLB player, and he achieved moderate success as a manager as well. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's why we named Frank Robinson as our top choice for player managers in MLB history. I'd love to hear what you think. If you agree with our list, if you have thoughts, I would love to include them. We do have another mailbag episode coming up this month. You can email me rounders at gmail.com rounders podcast at gmail.com. Send me your thoughts. Let me know what you think. You can also connect with me on social media. Now, before we end the episode, I promised you at the beginning that we would talk a little more about the trend as a whole. And we saw the player manager concept really more popular in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and we haven't seen it since the 1980s. So why? Why did the player manager trend end? Where is it going? Why don't we look at why it ended? And if you look at the realistic uh, expectations of managers nowadays, the job requires so much. You have to keep track of in-game management pitch to pitch. You have to keep track of playing matchups. You have to look at guys in the bullpen to come in at certain times. You have your seventh inning guy. You have your setup guy. You have your closer. So really the job is much more in-depth than it was. And it requires someone to do the position full time as opposed to splitting time playing on the field. We also see that managers... Instead of hiring player managers, we see individuals maybe looking towards former players to fill that role, or even individuals who are young enough to possibly play at the tail end of their careers, but still be able to bring that managerial success to the dugout without setting foot on the field. An example of that would be Oliver Marmol. He was recently hired by the St. Louis Cardinals. He's only 35 years old. He's the youngest manager in baseball history. So we see the, the willingness to hire individuals of playing age, but not have them be on the field. And really, it comes down to the fact that you don't need to do that anymore because of the demands of the position. Why? And if you look at MLB teams and their financial uh, comfort, their financial ability, all 30 franchises are worth over a billion dollars right now. So to save money, it's not really a concern to try and combine those two positions now. There's no need to do that. You can hire a separate manager. So that begs the question, will we ever see another player manager in Major League Baseball? I would say because of the aforementioned trends that we laid out, you know, because of the the focus on specialization and in-game management and being willing to hire younger players to just serve as managers, it doesn't seem like that's going to be something that we see in baseball again. I mean, look, the younger leadership, it it serves the purpose of connecting the players together with their manager and better understanding the clubhouse climate needed for today. It really negates the need for a player manager to do that because the manager already is of that age and experience to kind of match what the players need in today's game. And then of course, there's that increased revenue that MLB franchises are enjoying right now. They have the resources to just have one manager, but you never know. There could be surprises. There could be outliers. We do know that specialization could lend itself to a new kind of specialized player. Look at Shohei Otani, the guy that plays for the Angels. He's a pitcher. He plays DH. He plays outfield. 
He's a true two-way player. And he's the first major leaguer in an even longer time since we've seen player managers to really play that many positions and work their way around the club in different ways. So could there be an option that comes up where someone can manage effectively but still has that much value on the field that they would keep those two together? I mean, it could. I think in the most likely of situations, we would see a really small market club trying to maximize their their cap room, their available finances to be able to take an aging star on their roster who maybe is only playing a certain amount of days during the season. Maybe he's the right guy to be able to put as the face of the club in the managerial position who can still connect with the players and can serve, you know, the ability to step into a game as time goes on. That would probably be the best fit if we do ever see this again. But it seems like baseball has evolved to the point where the player manager is no longer needed. But yet, we take the time to celebrate those who excelled in this two-step position. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. Remember, if you want to submit questions to me, for our monthly mailbag episode, or you just want to follow up and talk about something that we discussed in the episode, you can follow us on social. We're at Rounders Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also email me at rounderspodcast at gmail.com. You can even, if you click in the show notes, you can even leave me a voicemail asking me a question, which I will happily include on a future show. Please don't forget to take a look at becoming a premium subscriber. All that information was mentioned to you uh, in an ad, and also it is included in the description. I would appreciate your financial support as we grow the show, and we can stick it to those out-of-touch corporate sports monopolies and bring baseball back to the people. So I hope to see you on social. I hope to hear those communications from you. And until we meet again, folks, remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. Thank you.